this week on the adaptation game. How do you do? Boys, glad to meet you. How do you do? How do you do? It's like the Splash Mountain song. I don't I don't know the um I don't know all the words to the Splash Mountain, but that is the Splash Mountain song. And that's how it goes. And speaking of songs, here's the theme song. Ladies and gentlemen, to the Adaptation Game, the show where a couple of jokers meet their Batman, by which I mean... Uh, <laughs> by, me, by, by which you mean we cackle and then beat ourselves up later in the night as so, oh, I should have said that. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> That's uh, accurate. The show where a, a couple of people with no skills whatsoever, including skills at uh, creating analogies yeah. to describe the show, attempt to adapt various media properties into other mediums. And this week we are uh, taking a dive into an area in which I wouldn't say we are experts, but Chris and I are particularly well versed. And uh, I should also probably say that, hey, I'm your host, Matthew Schott. Hello. And with me, as always, is my intrepid co-host, Chris Ogawa. Hello. Man, I am just crushing the introduction game today. None of this is getting scrammed. You know, it's not. This is all kept in. <laughs> it's not called the introduction game after all. So if anyone came no, here for introductions, no, no. they can go to maybe a, watch a re- replays of the Tony Awards or something. There's plenty of introductions there. Please stay tuned for our new sister podcast, The Introduction Game, where we just <laughs> seamlessly introduce a podcast and then there's no content after that. It's only introductions. Uh, yeah. So it's a nice companion piece to this where the introductions are horrible. It's a cool so, 500 episodes long and we release three a week. Yeah, it's it's a high quality show. It's uh, number three on, on iTunes right yeah, now. Yeah, right below Joe Rogan <laughs> Experience, that sage of wisdom. Oh, man, we just can't top that guy no can't matter how hard we Joe try. Joe Rogan, dude. You can't beat Rogan. You can't beat him at his own game, which is platforming Nazis. So uh, <laughs> you got me jokering again. <laughs> I got to say, oh, man, somebody call Arkham because we are on the loose. Uh, so this week, uh, Christopher and I are uh, mildly well versed in this subject because this week we are taking Uh, We are following in a a recent uh, tradition by the Disney Corporation, and we are taking rides from Disney theme parks and adapting them into – we didn't actually establish, uh, I assume, major motion pictures. Um, Yeah. Is that is that that's accurate? Okay, great. So I'm going to say major motion pictures, and if I want to cut out uh, that, then I can, but I don't have to. Um, It's it's totally my call. So (laughs) – So uh, (laughs) let's go right into uh, the history of this because Disney has been adapting uh, rides into other media for quite some time. And I want to start off by asking you, Chris, do you know the first Disney ride to be adapted into a movie? I'm going to take a wild guess here. Um, Like you established, we both take great pride in our Disney Anna knowledge. Um, ah, Shit. Is it... Did Disney make a mission to space picture? Chris? 
Oh. You are wrong. Oh. It is not. It is not. There is Mission to Mars was a film released in 2000 based on a the ride of the same name at Disneyland. But before that, there was one other. It was a direct to TV movie, a made for TV movie based on the newly constructed Tower of Terror. Oh, that's a bad with- <laughs> one, but they are remaking it. With Steve Gutenberg and Kirsten Dunst. Um, yeah, that's are they a bad remake? One. Are they making another okay, so uh, Tower of Terror movie? Disney's The Tower of Terror movie remake. Uh, you'll see it on Wikipedia. Oh, you'll yeah. see it on Google. It's yeah, no, definitely the right rumor here. mill. It's on. It's it's one of those pieces, like any David Fincher adaptation or something. It gets tabled and then reinvigorated every year and a half to two years. And of course, you know, COVID definitely affects timelines across Hollywood. So I imagine we're going to see a remake of Tower of Terror, which has been unfortunately pulled from both parks. Um, we're probably going to see a remake. Maybe twenty twenty five is my is my guess. Hopefully folks can revisit well, this years later and be like, has, wow, he was prophetic. There was also a um there was also a a haunted mansion reboot that's been floating around for yes, a while. Yes. Um at at one point Where's that at? Um I believe uh uh what's his face? Um Guillermo del Toro frequently referenced yes. here on uh on the adaptation game. He was in in the works to do a haunted that. mansion movie. I remember that, which would be really cool. I don't think that that movie is going anywhere, though. Last I've heard, I don't. I think that's that's pretty much permanently stalled. Um, and I will say, the Tower of Terror is closed in California, but is still operating in Florida. So you can still ride the original uh, Tower of Terror, which in and it's in and of itself is already kind of a Twilight Zone ride. It's a Twilight so, Zone ride, which, but I will say that I rode it in 2016. With great expectations, because it's an incredible... So you get the elevator ride, and you also get a dark ride experience. And Mm -hmm. they cut all of the copyrighted audio that references the Twilight Zone or Twilight Zone-related properties. So you're basically floating through... When I wrote it in 2016, maybe different now. um, Maybe they revoiced it. But it was just, like, silent for a lot of sections. And they cut the theme music of the Twilight Zone from the intro in 2016. Interesting. And now, it is also possible that you could have been writing it at a time where it was just strongly malfunctioning. Uh, because that is a trend <laughs> with uh, Disney rides. A disastrously broken constant version. Break- <laughs> constant breakage. Um, so... That was the very first film, uh, and it was not a hit. There was also Mission to Mars in 2000, which, fun fact, was the first movie I ever saw by myself um, in a theater was the movie Mission to Mars with um, Gary Sinise and Don Cheadle, was it, uh, uh, which came out at the same time as Red Planet, which was also about an expedition to Mars. And preceded by a few years, um, what was that big bomb, bomb John something? John John Carter John of Mars? Carter was like their biggest fucking oh that was yeah that was office that was years later based on the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, like legendary uh, adventure books um, no uh, the next one though after that after Mission to Mars they tried their hand one more time just to see if it would stick with a little movie uh, called the Pirates of the Caribbean based on the writer of the same name now I didn't do any research on this but I believe it would it did not do very well at the box office <laughs> the Pirates of the Caribbean I'm unfamiliar it's not 
Yeah, it's, it didn't really go anywhere. It's, uh, I've not once it's, cheered uh, while in the in a in the seats of a movie theater. I have not watched a bootleg of the second or third. I can't recall uh, <laughs> of the of the property of the same name in the spirit of piracy. Uh, a bootleg was passed. To <laughs> yeah, me that's as a true. Child. That's of all movies to pirate. That would be the one where it's the most the pirate ethically movie. okay. Um, so the Pirates of the Caribbean is obviously a massive, massive franchise that is in the works of its own reboot right now with a Pirates totally original cast. Actually, there are, I think this would be the sixth pirate movie because I think there are already five. There's, there's, there's already five. Uh, uh, there's Dead Man's Chest yes. at World's End. Yes. Uh, I think then on Stranger Tides and Stranger then like Tides. the most recent one was like Dead Men Tell No Tales or something Dead like Tell that. No with, That's um, correct. And there's, so then, yeah, there's so then there's five. Pearl. So there's already five Pirates of the Caribbean. We're getting a yeah, sixth so the next film. one will be a sixth. We're getting a sixth yeah, Pirates. Six, What's it six called? Movies. Like the sand as you I don't wait know. in line? I think it's a, they it's a total a, reboot. <laughs> they They're gotta, rebuilding. <laughs> wait, a reinvigoration. So we're looking at, I mean, because uh, Johnny Depp, I mean, unfortunately, but rightfully so, but unfortunate for our childhoods, you know, after the wife beater case, which we must admit, you know, that went through in uh, in Europe uh, and he's cut from any future Pirates of the Caribbean franchise deals. Um, well, but it's important to note that uh, the results of that case were that we discovered that uh, the allegations against him were the, the, the reverse, that she was the abuser. Um, that was the big shocking revelation of that case. Not that he was abusive, but that she was. But there was one this um, week, though, about uh, he was called a wife beater in Europe, and then he tried to appeal it, right? So this is the welcome to uh, Johnny Depp Corner. This is <laughs> the, the part of the show. <laughs> This is this is the part of the show every week where we address Johnny Depp's current standing in the uh, uh, collective unconscious. Uh, so, no, the case that he just had was against a, a UK uh, newspaper, newspaper for calling him a wife beater. Yeah. It was a libel case. So the case was ruled against him because based on the information available to the newspaper at the time of publication, their accusation of calling him a wife beater was the court ruled acceptable. Not that he was in fact uh, somebody that beat his wife. It was so a, that, that wasn't what was being determined in that case. Oh, okay. So based on the current evidence and current public opinion and, and le legislative opinion, he fell into that category. It's still under investigation. Yeah, I mean, uh, as a part of that libel case, there was a lot of uh, recordings released of Amber Heard abusing him. Like, you can literally oh hear her admitting to it and, like, screaming at him on tape. So the evidence against Amber Heard at this point is pretty damning. It's pretty spectacular. Um, Unlike yeah, any and of Johnny her Depp performances. Was, he was just cut from uh, the Harry Potter prequels, which is kind of... Kind of bizarre considering, again, she was the one that looks really bad coming out of this, not I him. hear that she might um, get cut from the next Aquaman, though. It's a, it's a big old mess. It's entirely mess. possible. It's a huge uh, mess. But it would be, yeah, it's the same studio. It's Warner Brothers, so it would it would be um, interesting. Uh, either way, Johnny Depp's life is kind of a big mess, and uh, uh, the, as are the pirate sequels. I'm going to take a kind of bold stance here, and maybe this is our transition into personal history. Yeah. I don't like 
any of those movies. Um, I saw the first Pirates in theaters when it first came out, and I was not a fan. Um, it's a movie I think I've always kind of thought that maybe I should revisit and give a second go, but I found Johnny Depp to be exceedingly annoying. And if you can't get on board with him, there's no real reason to watch those movies yeah. because he, he is the Steve Urkel He's the Steve of Urkel. the he's Pirates the, movies. He's the family matter of the movie. Well, um, yeah, I would agree. A fun fact about the Pirates series is it was actually originally tailored to be a star vehicle for a rising Kara Knightley who did fine without it being a vehicle for her and, and Orlando Bloom, who was also simultaneously juggling Lord of the Rings. And, you know, Johnny Depp brings this Keith Richards ripoff and, and totally uh, kills the game uh, as a pirate. Really brilliant choice, I think, as far as character acting there. Um, but if you are annoyed, which you are very it's within your rights to be annoyed by any film character, um, then yeah, of course it's gonna be a it's gonna be a bad time because they definitely the the camera lens and the production and the design of the stories and the pacing and everything then sort of uh, shifted pivoted to this sort of uh, side character, um, uh, this sort of Rafiki like. Um, you know, wise man that was to guide uh, our uh, protagonists on their love and adventure journey. Um, he sort of stole the show. It's like if Lion King, like the biggest takeaway was Rafiki, like no Timon Pumbaa, uh, no uh, any of that business. And it was like, you know, I, I come, I keep coming back to Lion King for Rafiki. And if you don't like Rafiki, you're gonna have a bad night. You know, it's interesting. Uh, the the Pirates movie faced like so many hurdles keeping it from getting made like apparently Michael Eisner hated the movie and he did not want to see it come to fruition he saw like an early cut of it and he thought that uh, Johnny Depp was out of control and he just didn't think the movie was going to make any money and he fought against releasing it uh, which that is so funny is, to think about now that note is so funny is, to give to Bruckheimer and the team is like Johnny Depp is fucking out of control why did you not rein him in on the high seas while he's swinging around drinking rum, this man is doing whatever he wants. And the the other thing I always love to bring up about uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean movie is there's a conspiracy theory that I subscribe to because I think it's interesting um, that the the writer of Pirates of the Caribbean, before he wrote Pirates of the Caribbean, he was tapped to write uh, a movie based on the classic uh, LucasArts adventure game, The Secret of Monkey Island. Oh. Now, if you're not... F Familiar with the secret of Monkey Island, uh, the premise of that game is that he uh, the, it follows Guybrush Threepwood, who um, is a like adventurer who comes to this small uh, coastal town where the mayor's daughter is kidnapped by a ghost ship uh, that is pirated by a like crew of skeletal ghost pirates and they kidnap her with the intent of bringing her to uh, Monkey Island where they will have the opportunity to lift the curse that was placed upon them and free themselves from this pirate like curse uh, and Guybrush has to like stop them so the fan theory the like conspiracy theory is that because uh, the Monkey Island movie never got made but he was still hired to write a screenplay for it so the the big the big conspiracy theory is that when he was then hired to make a different pirate movie he just took the script he had already written for the secret of monkey island and then just retooled it to be about different characters My because the plot similarity 
similarities are pretty, they're pretty striking every how similar ploppy. those two stories are. Every single plot. Yeah. That's shocking. I'm, di- I'm disillusioned. Count me as the disillusion game on this, this episode. I know it's 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 shocking to think that something uh, as rich as the Pirates of the Caribbean universe uh, <laughs> and could consistently be based on a lie. good. <laughs> I will. I know everybody's favorite. I will say my relationship to Pirates of the Caribbean. I loved Black Pearl. I was twelve years old. That's a big factor. Um, <laughs> I loved Black Pearl. I liked Dead Man's Chest a lot. I hate all of the other ones, and it's agony even even entertaining the idea of watching them. I think that um, I think they tripped into a lot of racism tropes uh, as they tried to make it more diverse. And they, they sort of pinioned uh, these rich cultures into like five to 10 minutes of, of, of Johnny Depp sort of roasting them and, and riffing on their cannibalism or riffing on their love for a steam bath in, in uh, the uh, Orient, et cetera, at all. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a dicey series. I think it makes sense that Johnny should divorce himself and Disney should divorce him from the future of it. And I think honestly, Disney, I mean, they haven't had, are you ready for a hot take, Matt? I don't know that we've had. I'm so ready for it. We don't often have them. I do not think that Disney has made a good non-animated picture in probably 15 years. I do not think that any of these remakes have been good. You don't consider, I mean, well, what about like Star Wars? Uh, I mean, I think of the new, the, of, cause that's, that's, that's a Disney picture. They no, made I'm those listening movies. To you. I mean, um, are you, are you, I, are, wait, which Star Wars are you talking about? I'm talking about, uh, well, specifically the sequel trilogy, because I can, I will contest that. I think there is one and a half good movies in that sequel trilogy. I think, um, I think that The Force Awakens is a good movie, and I think that uh, a, a good solid chunk of The Last Jedi is very good. Um, overall, I would call The Last Jedi a good movie. I just have complicated feelings about it. And maybe when we do a Star Wars episode, we can get into those feelings. I am so impressed and surprised that you are such an optimist about the remakes. I enjoy The Force Awakens. I think it's great. I think what it promises, it fails to deliver over the course of three pictures. I'll, I'll agree with that. Um, I think that's fair. Yeah, uh, but I do. I had a great time in all of them, and I'm honestly a, a Star Wars optimist. I just have a great time. I even had, I, fuck it, I had a great time in, in Solo. I didn't think that the late actor was any good. I thought that I like seeing the tech. I like seeing the the world expanded. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very low threshold for enjoying a Star Wars picture. I'm like, is there a Chewie? Is there a Yoda? If either of those boxes are checked, sign me up. I'll just have a good time. But like, I, I also am not a diehard Star Wars fan. I just, I just enjoy the ride. I enjoy being there. I'm always with a smile on my face in the audience for those. I am. I would not consider myself a diehard Star Wars fan, um, but I do. I am a big Kylo Ren fan. I'm a Kylo Ren head. Yeah. Um. I I think that he's the best. I think that he is the best Star Wars character, and uh, I the best thing to come out of those movies by uh, leaps and bounds. Um. But. This is not Star Wars talk. This is Disney talk. Um, and so I just want to briefly cover uh, there is a couple of other ride to uh, movie adaptations that are uh, less notable. There's the Eddie Murphy uh, Haunted Mansion, which uh, is not good. I hate um, that I remember... movie. I watched it recently. I hated it. <laughs> 
My my only memory of that movie is there's the the singing heads are in it, and I thought that they would add Eddie Murphy to the ride after that movie came out in the same way that they added uh, Johnny Depp to the Pirates ride. Yeah, they, um, which is, in my opinion, kind of ruins that ride. I think. Uh, well, I mean, the animatronic tech is gorgeous, but I I agree that the the story beats that they put into that ride don't really serve it. I think. With Haunted Mansion, what I remember is it's like Benicio del Toro or someone is the guy who hangs himself in the beginning of Haunted Mansion, and he's in love with the reincarnation of his lost love that is happens to be Eddie Murphy's wife, and that is a terrible premise, and it's super I creepy. Think it's, um, I think it's Terrence Stamp is the the bad ghost in that movie. Yeah, uh, General Zod from Superman Two. Yeah, um, I think Wait, he's. No, the, I think no, he's Zod the bad is guy. Michael Shannon. No, no, no! In in the original Superman, oh, too. Oh, the original. Uh, Terrence, Terrence Stamp. Okay, yeah, my is, apologies. Is General Zod. My apologies there. Um, I I think he's the best. It's been I haven't seen the movie since it was in theaters, um, but I do remember that whole like Dracula esque thing. If you want to have like, a bad, you look just like a lady I used to know. Yeah, if you <laughs> if you want to have a bad night, go on Disney Plus, look up Haunted Mansion, Eddie Murphy, and you'll be upset at every turn of that picture. It's terrible. I think. I think there is like a bit of a revisionist uh, movement about that movie. I think some people are coming out of the woodworks and saying that they like it, but I don't know. I I, I don't want to speak too much on that movie just because I don't remember it. Uh, but there's also uh, Tomorrowland, yes, um, which was a big flop. Um, big flop. And I don't. I uh, there's stuff in that movie that's pretty bad. Uh, George Clooney has a romance with a uh, android that looks like a 12 year old girl. Oh um, and shit! I forgot about that. This is actually one of the source materials for my pitch tonight, so I feel bad now. <laughs> that's 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 maybe the worst idea they could have uh, put in that movie. But there's ideas and there's things in Tomorrowland that I like. I think it's Brad Bird did that movie, um, and he's he's a pretty uh, he's a pretty solid director, and yeah. it's a shame that that movie movie was just like such a such a disaster because I think it's it's clear that that movie has like a lot of love in it and there's a real nice like optimistic take in that movie that's that I appreciate but yeah as as just a movie it's it's not uh, it's not stellar uh, and I think those are the big ones. We have the upcoming. Oh, there's also, of course, the Country Bear movie with Christopher oh Walken. Oh my god, uh, dude! I the less said about, about that movie, movie the better. I forgot about that fucking Country Bears movie, dude. Yeah, there's there's that, and then there's uh, up the next one we have coming is there's a Jungle Cruise movie yes. with uh, uh, the Rock. The Rock, yeah, I remember that being announced. I remember being very upset by it, but you know, I think the Rock is a perfect, um, you know, a list star, blockbuster darling, uh, box office darling to carry such a fit picture. Um, because of his heritage and also his box office. I hope it is a respectful film. I hope it's an exciting film that's worthy of, you know, it it, it recalls to life the memories of riding in the back of a, of a boat just to sort of pass the day away while a very uh, failed uh, young comedian uh, drives us along the track. <laughs> That's extra funny because I knew a Jungle Cruise skipper. I know one too. Um, and I, so... I think that fits the bill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear God. Uh, well, I will. I'm going to plead the fifth on this one just in case they ever listen. I hope that they're a fan um, of the show. And if, if, if they would like to send a rebuttal, I would love oh, to have them on. 
they're not. Um, so <laughs> with that, I think we've covered. Uh, I think I think it's worth mentioning that Chris and I are both big fans of Disney World. Uh, yeah. We've been many times. And in the future, I'm putting it out there right now. This is the secret. I'm putting it out into the universe. Chris and I will be in Disney World together, together. at some point oh, yeah. in the future. And Perhaps even time. 2021. Yeah, not just It could time. be 2021. Yeah, it's going to happen for sure. It's going to happen. Chris and I will be there together and we will post pictures wearing our Adaptation Games t-shirts. Yes. Uh, in, to the in Adaptation the, Game uh, Instagram and Adaptation Game Twitter. Both of which will exist uh, by the time that that happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're both big fans of Disney World and and the rides and the experience. So I think we're we're uniquely qualified for the first time in, in adaptation game history to talk about uh, how we would adapt various rides from the parks into movies. And so with that, I think it's time to dig into these pitches in that juicy, juicy land, that realm outside of the adaptation lounge that is known only as the pitch zone. So with that, you know what time it is. It's time to listen to the sweet sounds of this week's pitch zone theme song. Here we go. You may find me in the lounge You may find me all alone But if I'm not around I'm probably in the zone Cause I'm gonna pitch tonight Gonna pitch it right Cause might put up a fight If we do it right I'm gonna pitch today No matter what they say When that takes us off the rails With the pitch he brings today yeah, Welcome to the Pitch Zone, ladies and gentlemen. We have stepped out of the blank void full of random furniture that is the Adaptation Lounge, and we have stepped into the Pitch Zone. We've never described, I don't think, what the Pitch Zone looks like, but that is because it is beyond mortal comprehension. Yeah. It's a bit like, like a Lovecraftian hellscape yeah. that if you look upon it, you go mad. Yeah. A lot um, of wrought iron. So we... Tr- we try not to describe it because uh, we are uh, already insane. So uh, first up on the pitcher's mound is, of course, the intolerably handsome Mr. Chris Okawa <laughs> with his pitch. So please, Chris, batter up. Excellent. Um, so I'll uh, just give a couple lines of personal relation to uh, this pitch. I myself, I grew up from a young age. Um, in, well, like most people, I grew up from a young age. Um, I grew up in uh, California. We lived in an overpriced, uh, you know, f- falsely inflated house that was very expensive. It is now, I think, listed on the market for like $1.8 million, but it was essentially a two-bedroom, like, you know, New York apartment. Um, and we, you know, like money was tight. You know, we were trying to make ends meet. We are in a completely overpriced house in a depressed labor market. And so we couldn't afford to go to Disneyland. And I remember being 11 years old and loving Disney from afar. I had a cassette for, uh, it was a 
basically a virtual audiobook of it's a small world with sound effects and you go through it's a small world ride and the lady the wonderful narrator uh, describes it to you and I played it on my cassette tape and would listen to it and close my eyes and imagine being there and I loved Disneyland um, without even having met it and when I was in the the third grade we moved to Arizona of course housing a lot more affordable quality of life a lot more affordable and a big pitch my parents had for us was like we will get you will get to go we can afford to go to Disneyland. And I was like, you know what? This is it. Like, this is my, this is the right move. And so I finally got to go to Disneyland. I was around, you know, uh, 10 years old when I first went to Disneyland, 10 or 11. And uh, I was blown away. It was everything I wished it would be. I fell in love with it. We as a family made it just a part of our aesthetic. We all fell in love with it. We loved it. We loved the lore. We loved the movies. We loved just everything you could love about Disneyland. Um, and so I became this aficionado of, of Disneyana, which is important to note because it's, it's really the piece of me that is with our protagonist in my pitch tonight. So Disneyana is like the study of Disney, its history, the appreciation of its collectibles, the appreciation of the economy of its collectibles. We were big pin traders. I was just such a Disney head and still am, uh, to a little bit more respectable degree. Um, and uh, I was just a Disney nerd. And so that's what I wanted to make a story about. I wanted to make uh, a story about a Disney nerd who really gets to participate in the rich and storied history of this great, and by great, I mean vast company um, that has had, it's brightened so many lives. And whilst it does have a checkered history and, you know, there's always rumors of anti-Semitism and its origins going around, you know, we won't entertain that or we'll set that aside for the sake of the pitch. So for my film, I wanted to combine the ideas of, and I really liked the promise of Birds Tomorrowland with George Clooney. I liked the an enigmatic idea of like, you will find like a MacGuffin and it will take you away Narnia-like into this far away Disney-ish land. And, and the idea that it was hiding in plain sight, right? Because we travel in Tomorrowland, we travel through the state fair, we travel using these magical pins. Uh, they're things that are ever present. Uh, and so hiding in plain sight is a big motif in my pitch and also a little bit of Halloween Town because I re recently watched it for the season. Um, so my Disney film is like in the tradition of all ride named films is called The Omnibus. Um, and uh, so our story, it begins in sepia tones uh, with an establishing shot recreating a Disneyland in its uh, early golden age. Um, so we're looking at the early 60s, once they'd finally figured out all the moving parts of it all. Um, this is a time period where uh, we, where Walt Disney was noted to live above the Main Street uh, firehouse and to visit with uh, park attendees and to have a very hands-on approach to all the elements of the park. Um, so we have an establishing shot of all these different niceties of this era. I don't want archival footage at this moment. I would want to recreate it in high-res. Uh, and, uh, so it culminates, it all ends with this, uh, maybe like a two minute sequence of all these different wonderful things that happened in the sixties in Disneyland, all the great times families were having together. And it culminates in a shot of a beautiful Spanish calico shoes marching down the stairs of the Disneyland fire department street entrance, panning up the pants, the wonderfully manicured pants to the beautifully manicured suit jacket with the D23 gold pin uh, on the lapel. So if you go to 
uh, New Orleans Square in Disneyland, you'll see this Disney, like a big like Disney D that's gold. And then there's a little uh, Cinderella castle in the middle. And that's what I'm describing here. And it's uh, on the lapel. I really think that merch is important to the company when they design these, you know, films. Uh, and so I wanted to appease the merchandise people with this pin. Um, it's not really important to our uh, plot, but it is a fun Easter egg to drop in there just from the off to know that this is uh, this is a film for fans. Um and uh, then we're we're not sure who this is. We never show their face, um, but they uh, we have I want it to sort of be a replica of either Walt or Roy's like sort of hand texture uh, and and dress as they place like some sort of like glowing item or they inscribe something uh, that ends up glowing underneath the steering wheel of the omnibus, which is, of course, nestled in uh, the Disneyland uh, fire department garage. Um, and so then we cut to that ends our opening sequence. We cut to the modern day family vacationing. There's a young boy uh, played by Finn Wolfhard uh, and his name's Marvin. Um, Finn Wolfhard, of course, from Stranger Things and it series. Um, the new one uh, is it's a Finn plays this Disneyana nerd. Marvin is a Disneyana nerd. He's even named for one of the uh, inscribed windows on Main Street, USA. Marvin D, uh, who was a founder of the uh, Walt E. Disney uh, Grad School of Design and Master Planning, to my understanding, based on um, Wikipedia. Um, so he's a big Disney and a nerd. His family and him, they have this wonderful rich heritage of loving Disney. They're park holders. They live in Anaheim. Now, if we ever show their house, we're going to have to beautify Anaheim. Anaheim is a shithole. But their house is going to look just like you'd want it to. Um, and uh, he is visiting and he, he has a friend with him, maybe, or someone that he's like sort of playing tour guide. This is something that I still do today. And that was a big part of my childhood is I loved being a tour guide and sharing with people things that I had studied uh, or was nerdy about or inviting them and making them feel at home, but also sharing my love of knowing, you know, the inner workings of things with people. So that's very much this opening beat. Finn is uh, introducing or rather the character Marvin is introducing their friend to all these things of uh, Main Street. And uh, he notes that there's a few names missing. You know, New Main Street USA famously has is littered with names of acknowledgments for people that made Disneyland happen. There's some names missing, including the name that he is named after, Marvin D. Um, and he starts to, this sort of tips him off. He, he talks to a couple cast members, he talks to a couple officials and they're like, Oh, I, I, I didn't even notice that. Um, and he's like, he's like, it looks like it never has been there. Uh, and so he's looking at maps. He's looking at these different elements as he's trying to give this tour to this friend. And he's noting some very specific, very nerdy elements are missing from the map or, or disappearing or names are disappearing or, or, um, just different, um, iconic statues or have changed slightly. Uh, and it, this ends with at the end of Main Street USA, he gets to the famous hub uh, with the famous statue of Walt holding Mickey's hand. Uh, but Walt isn't holding Mickey's hand. Walt's holding a cigarette. Uh, and as he stares out and gestures towards <laughs> Cinderella Hotel, there's a little bit of uh, we go a little bit off the rails at that moment. Um, the colors are different. They're wrong on the monorail. The, the numbers and the, the uh, sequences, the fake sequences on the monorail to give it a futuristic feel are wrong. And only Marvin seems to know these things. Uh, Oswald the Rabbit is appearing uh, increasingly. He's increasingly present in the merch. 
There's an uh, the, the Mickey Theater has been changed to the Oswald Theater. There's a chocolate Oswald ice cream bars. Uh, he is just surrounded by this world that is his own, but not his own. In the words of William Shakespeare and Cymbeline, you are my known, but not my own. And so uh, he, uh, this is a part where we realize that Marvin is, has befriended uh, the, fr- the driver, the, the very mysterious old man driver of the omnibus, played by Jeff Goldblum, who's a Disney darling right now. Um, and he ex- he expresses these different notices to to uh, Jeff as they take their inaugural ride. It's a tradition uh, down Main Street USA and around the hub and then back to the firehouse. And he's like, no, like, and I don't have a name for this character. Maybe we can add it to the punch up. But he's like, no, like, we, like, things are different. Things are changing. Things are wrong. And this guy totally, Jeff takes it in stride. Jeff's great at taking these things in stride in his characters. And he's like, you know what? We need to go get some beignets to discuss this further. He's looking nervously around himself. At this point, they're enjoying beignets, looking out at the rivers of America. Um, and this is branding. I put that in parentheses. It's important for branding. You know, we're selling mm-hmm. Disneyland after all. Um, and uh, Jeff ends up telling Marv about the true founding of Disney animation. And this is something I learned from the Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. Um, that I, uh, Ub Iwerks, an animator, uh, partnered with Walt Disney to create Mickey Mouse and many other fundamental icons to the company. And then around 1930, Ub sort of mysteriously disappears. He goes to like make his own studio, but his, nothing comes of his own studio. And just a couple years later, seven years later, 1937, we see Snow White. Walt gets the Oscar, you know, they they make history, the first animated feature to get an Oscar, an honorary Oscar, actually, for the picture. And, you know, he becomes a made man. And Ub is nowhere to be seen. I believe it's also the the first animated feature just in general. Yeah, the first. Yeah. And it was right after, you know, it was after the Great Depression. People are looking for escapist media. And an animated picture that's oh we're we're right in the thick of this the Great Depression in 1937. Yeah, so we're we're in the heart of the Great Depression. We're looking for escapist media. You know, Wizard of Oz is big during this time. We're looking for far off lands and color and vibrancy and fantasia, so to speak. Um, you know, to present on the screen. And so a feature length animated picture when everything else was a short with very little sound prior to this point. Uh, is was remarkable and Ub was not a part of this and so uh, they're talking about this and and this sort of peaks something in uh, Marvin's uh, sort of view he's like wow that's really strange I'd never heard of Ub I'd never you know I didn't know that Mickey was a was a collaboration and as they look they see Tom Sawyer Island slowly like sort of Benjamin Buttons it gets like younger looking it gets undeveloped it gets like deconstructed before their eyes and swallowed by the lakes of America And uh, Marv turns to his dining companion to see that he, too, is Benjamin buttoning away. You know, this this we're going to put maybe 10 to 15 years on um, on Jeff for this picture uh, to sort of make him a Christopher Lloyd like character. So he'll have like whitish hair and whatnot. So his hair then gets darker, becomes briefly the Jeff Goldblum we know. And then like a young Jeff Goldblum and he's like choking and he's like, he's like standing up and he's like waving for the bill initially and realizes it's getting worse. And he, uh, he's like, just go, let's just go. And so they, uh, so he sort of trots him down Main Street USA towards the firehouse, um, which is about, you know, a 15, 20 minute walk. Um, excuse me. <coughs> oh my. And uh, we sort of have a, I've, uh, 
I've got to show you something uh, moment from Jeff Goldblum. And they uh, they're they're running they're running down the street uh, as it becomes increasingly dire. They hop into uh, he hops into the driver's seat of the omnibus and he he pulls a clandestine lever. We see a wonderful whirring and a color sequence as the car sort of uh, gains this new life. And he's like, just get in, get in. As you hear like a high roaring around their ears and other the similar deconstructing sounds of elements of the park. And uh, Marv jumps in. They get into this uh, bus and they sort of have like kind of like a, what they have in Harry Potter sequence with the night bus. Uh, they go back in time uh, and, uh, you know, Marv makes a big deal of it. And we're back in 1928 and they're in this clandestine park. Um, it's off the beaten path park, very small. And there's a single carousel and there's two girls on the carousel rolling or, you know, riding around. Uh, and there's the silhouette of a man eating peanuts on a bench. Uh, as he looks at the, the the carousel and Marv knows who this man is and Jeff Goldblum's character knows who this man is. And Marv's initial thing is like, oh, I have to talk to him. I have to talk to Walt. I have to thank him for everything he did because this is the moment where Walt Disney conceives of Disneyland. And yes, this film, it's good to note at this point that this film is very much a propaganda piece for Disney as is really mm. any modern you know film from Disney. Um, so they're patting themselves on the back with this picture. Uh, and they're back in time. Uh, you know, they witness it and, and, uh, Jeff is taking these notes and he's like, all right, we're okay here. We're clear here. Uh, and they end up it basically the main plot points are this time traveling omnibus. Uh, Jeff drives them, so to speak, to these different key moments in the Disney company's development and checks to see like that everything's right. Maybe some areas like Maybe a projection, maybe a projectionist is knocked out during the Snow White premiere in 1937 and they have to run the film themselves. Maybe uh, some characters are erased from Dumbo. Maybe Disneyland opening day, some of the food isn't ordered. I mean, it was already a disaster. The, the streets were just poured. So people's high heels, you hear the story, the high heels got stuck in the asphalt. You know, the water fountains were boiling. The bathrooms weren't working. So, um they try their best working their way up through Disneyland history, but they're always just a step behind this saboteur. And ultimately around the eighties, I think they catch him around Epcot era. Cause it's also good to loop Disney world. And they discover it's Ub Iwerks. Ub is salty. He left Disney right at the crepuscule of his own success. He too would have been an American legend, had such an incredible legacy. They reconcile with Ub. They don't end up, you know, murdering him or, or jailing him or anything. And so he travels in the uh, omnibus with them. Uh, and he, what he ends up doing is we have this emotional scene between Ub and his younger self, kind of like this is inspired by the Shawshank Redemption, where uh, Morgan Freeman's character is like, I would tell him to listen. I would look at this young man. I'd grab him by the shoulders and I'd tell him to listen. So he gets to tell this young man to listen. Like, I know that you're proud. I know you're talented, Ub. I know that Walt is kind of anti-Semitic, but you just have to trust this man. He is a visionary. He will change the whole world, whether you like it or not. And most of these people have some skeletons in the closet and you have to play ball. And so Ub actually, uh, he talks to a young Ub and we, it's implicit that Ub actually is able to sort of, uh, 
speak sense to to Walt, and Walt becomes less anti-Semitic in in this new timeline. <laughs> And uh, Hub <laughs> is able to stay at Disney, and he gets on the he gets on the omnibus for them because I we're in a post Saving Mr. Banks era of the Disney live action, so it's gotta be emotionally punchy. So they're on this bus, and Ub knows that by interfering with the timeline, like he's going to disappear, like he has just sort of signed his own death warrant. And uh, they're like, he's sitting in there with them. And he's holding their hand. He's holding Finn's hand, Finn Wolfley's hand. And he's just like giving him this great speech. And uh, Finn says goodbye. And he's proud of Ub. And this has some sort of impact with the character. Um, maybe Ub is played by Killian Murphy, an unexpectedly intense man for such a whimsical profession. I think that he looks old timey enough. And I think that he is conflicted enough. I think as a character actor, uh, I like him for that, but we can discuss that in the aftermath. So we have this, uh, basically a virtual or like a, you know, ideological death that he experiences on this omnibus at the great, you know, uh, sacrifice of his, a little bit of his own individuality to stay with the Disney company. And so they get back to Disneyland and they're like really nervous. There's another emotional moment. You know, it's sort of the curtain reveal moment on the bus between Jeff Goldblum's character and Finn's character. And they both love Disneyland so much and the Disney legacy. And it's like, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. And he pulls open the doors, the omnibus, and Finn gets out. And he steps out and he sees a more vibrant Disneyland. He sees way more like iconic characters. Oswald the rabbit is still there, but he's well loved and he made all these great pictures. He shares the Steamboat Willie Theater with Mickey, not all the pressures on Mickey. The Disneyland is twice as big as twice the footprint because Ub was able to help, you know, negotiate a better deal for their land deal. Um, there's way more movie, like double the movie posters at the entrance as uh, Finn's first stop is to run to the entrance underneath the bridge. And he sees twice as many beautiful movie posters. Uh, and then at the very end of his discovery sequence, and this is near the final moments of the picture, he he's like, I have to check one thing. And Jeff's like, okay, okay, because Jeff's old again. Uh, and he like sort of like waves him on his way and Finn Wolfhard runs down uh, Main Street. He sees his name. He sees all these beautiful names, all this wonderful merchandise from this combined universe of Ub and Wall. And he goes to the hub and he sees what the camera pans left from Wall. Then you see the iconic him holding Mickey's hand. But you see Mickey's right arm that's usually at his side is raised. And we pan to the right and we see... The UB is holding, also holding Mickey's hand. And so Mickey is between Walt and UB as they both mutually point to this castle. And uh, Jeff Goldblum does the voiceover. He's not speaking it diegetically to this character, but non-diegetically to us, the audience. And he says, it's kind of fun to do the impossible. You know, a famous Walt Disney quote. And then you get the like it's like a slightly different when you wish upon a star because Ub was a part of it. And that's the end of our picture, the omnibus. What do we think? Okay, so I think that this movie is so hard into propaganda that I think it should be shown in the park itself. I was itself. hoping that we could maybe get I, an in-park sort think, of ride thing going. 
I think if you put this in theaters, everybody would be like, this is literally just a commercial for Disneyland. So I think you put it right in the park as like a special attraction, like as a show you can go yeah, see. Yeah, like in- And you can make- you can make it like a 4D yeah, show. Yeah, like in the Captain you know, Neo like, theater. I was thinking maybe. Yeah, where like the this the seats shake. Maybe you even throw in like a cheeky reference to Captain EO where like they're flying, like the, the omnibus is like going through like a time tunnel and it goes by <laughs> the like Captain EO He's ship. like, we don't need to stop and, there. <laughs> and we're like, they're, they're like, what's that sound? Sounds like some pretty funky music coming from that ship. Um and like, you know, so, this, but like, this is such a celebration and such a like historical thing. This, it seems like there are, I'm, I'm, I find it hard to believe that this isn't already in the park. This, this type Can of you thing believe where it's it? like, let's go on a wild <laughs> journey through time and see all the great we things. We have the same that, Disneyland. Uh, well, I think, I think what makes it controversial is that it diminishes to a lot of people had to believe or I feel like a lot of Disney fans have to believe that Walt Disney was not an anti-Semite and also that he was a fucking genius and he did it all by himself. I think that's very important to the Disney lore at the moment. And I think opening it up and what I found inspirational at the Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, which is a Disney, you know, uh, you know, they have all of the Oscars there and everything like it's definitely a Disney official museum they acknowledge that ub was a huge pivotal part in making this company happen and so that's why i feel like i feel like it's because there's the absence of ub in the parks that they're afraid to like entertain that narrative yeah i mean uh it's 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 tricky because walt disney is such a um is such a untouchable figure for Disney. I mean, I haven't seen Saving Mr. Banks, but I do know that in that movie, they were very, very particular about how Walt Disney would be portrayed yes. on film. Yeah. And I don't see that really going away. Yeah. Because that's such a big part of the Disney brand. So I feel like if you were working with Disney to, to make this film, they would probably push pretty hard on a lot of this stuff to make Disney more and more of a sort of like Christ-like figure yeah. <laughs> in this narrative, which would make Ub Iwerks, I guess, the Judas of of that story, I, yeah. who sort of rede- redeems himself. Um, so there's there's a lot of potential there. Uh, I mean, I think I think there's there's a really good opportunity to just have this like kind of wacky celebration of of Disney, uh, especially if you made it like a ride. Ironically, we set out to make a Disney ride into a movie and we are basically just making a ride out of a movie now. But like, you know, like a 3D experience where like maybe at one point, like while they're going through the time tunnel, like figment flies towards the screen and is like, whoa, watch out, you know. Like, What's going on? Oh, hey guys, I just hang out here between shows. Every yeah, you Wednesday know, you from 2 have- to 4 p.m. That's the thing you're really missing is you need to have a sort of cartoon I was n- character travel with I was them nervous about to that. sort of what? crack wise. Like may- maybe like a genie-esque figure who is yeah. like constantly making pop culture references, you know, and kind of like he's like a little sardonic, you know. He's got kind of like more modern deconstructionist uh, humor sensibilities. He's very like meta. So, you know, maybe – maybe and maybe that's Figment. Maybe you have a Figment kind of come in. That'd be fun. And, and crack jokes like that about like, well, you know, I'm supposed to be on a Imagination, but nobody's on that ride right now. You know, making fun of just how I think poor that, the attendance numbers is on that ride. Yeah, I think uh, narratively, 
in the parks, you can do that so much easier than if I did a major motion picture release. Because then I'm like, yeah. is this, they're like, is this you from Roger Rabbit? Why is there only one cartoon? But if we do this in the parks, I'm totally think like we should, I like maybe Goofy. Like I love Goofy and I think, I don't think he gets enough uh-huh. play. So I think, yeah, I would love to put more animated characters in this picture for sure. This is almost becoming Kingdom Hearts. Almost, uh, is huh? what we're creating here of these just like traveling through all these different worlds yeah. and seeing all these 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 different things. So I do I would like to see a, a cameo from Sora. I would like that to happen. <laughs> Maybe at one point they go through a big keyhole and there's Sora and Riku and they're like, let's we'll put you on the right track. And it's like, OK, that's that one's just for me. Um <laughs> So that would be nice. But uh, yeah, no, I think I think I think you're really onto something with just this like just completely over the top celebration of of Walt and his legacy and also kind of redeeming of iWorks. I could really see like if if my dad was still alive, I think this is the kind of show he would want to go see every time we go to Disney. I like that. You know, he was a big fan of that like 30 minute, uh, you know, history of Disney World show mm-hmm. that they had at like. I want to say Hollywood Studios. Yeah. There's like a there's there's like a movie that you can go watch about Walt Disney and like his like his life story in a very 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 neutered kind of sense. <laughs> they don't talk. They funny enough they don't talk a lot about his union busting. Uh, yeah. For some reason that doesn't really he come hated up. Hated <laughs> unions, dude. Um, so you know, I think this fits in uh, pretty pretty tightly with with those sorts of narratives, um, which I don't think is necessarily all bad. I mean, I think that Disney is selling a kind of like purified worldview, yeah. and and that's kind of part of the experience of going to the park. Yeah. So you know, it's it's. I do think that Disney should be more open with like the actual history of Walt Disney, um, just because he was like a, a literal human being who existed, and I think yeah. for like archival purposes, it's important to kind of like keep his life in like a proper context. But uh, I do think that just sort of like celebrating just a, this sort of like wonder and stuff like that's harmless. Um, so, uh, I'm going to give it the green light. Uh, this is, this is, um, this is Mark speaking from the Imagineering department. Uh, I, I'm, I'm giving it the green light, uh, especially if we can get, we turn the, you know, honey, I shrunk the kids slash captain EO theater into this. So, uh, because we're recycling that theater, we will at some point need to have some sort of like thing run by the audience's feet so we can like tickle their feet and oh. make them think there's like mice at their feet yeah. or um you know something something along those lines yeah uh maybe at one point they like accidentally open a box of like gremlins and like all the gremlins like scurry <laughs> yeah. out and they're like you guys watch out there also that's the other thing is that finn wolfhard should address the audience directly as like their companions on for this yes. journey you know he should be like he should be like these are my friends jeff goldblum they're gonna help well, us uh... Uh, I assume that that is uh, approved, pre-approved. Um, um, and maybe at, at one point, like a, a they, the audience uh, almost gets eaten by like a dinosaur or something, you know, just, yeah, just to like up maybe the they, excitement. Maybe when Jeff's figuring out the controls, he goes like 3,000 years, a million years too yeah, far yes. back. And Finn's like, Basically the plot of the- it's humid in here. <laughs> and he's like, I can't imagine. Maybe we have a Jurassic Park moment there before the, the dinosaur comes barreling down. Uh, so this is this is now the, the Back to the Future ride. That's what yeah. this is now. <laughs> I originally wanted Christopher Lloyd for the role, but then I was like, well, Jeff Goldblum, they would actually hire him to do this. So, 
Um, well, I, this has got to be a first in adaptation, adaptation game history where we've set out to adapt something and just made the thing we're adapting. <laughs> because it is now a ride. We have taken a dizzy ride and turned it into a different dizzy ride. <laughs> Which that's still adaptation. That still counts. That fa- that falls in line with what the show is about. So Amen. I applaud you, Chris, Thank you. for making adaptation game history and for celebrating the legacy of, of certainly an important man, a flawed but important man of course thank you yeah it's my pleasure it's uh it's something i'm passionate about so i was glad to that finn uh lent himself into my mind mind palace to create it yeah absolutely i think i think it's going to be a big hit until it is inevitably closed to make room for another frozen attraction yeah probably so frozen uh, 4d yeah. <laughs> olaf uh goes to hawaii olaf's, olaf's hawaii so. vacation that's three weeks long <laughs> Yes, uh, where he's where you know the audience is like, "Don't melt, Olaf! Don't go on the sun!" And he's like, "I'm you know, a dumbass!" And they're like, "I love Olaf. <laughs> Olaf is so great. Oh, what a genius he is! Josh is brilliant." How, I, as a, as a side note, how long do you think it's going to be uh, before we get a sexy female snowman character to be his love oh, the interest? Next, like the how, next movie, I think, or but, they might make it like another cute hapless boy and be like. Olaf was gay and I'm like he's played by a cis white man and they're like we don't That's care been... there's money in him being this gay straight white man yeah there's the, I mean there's the, hey there's there's something there it wouldn't be the first time they uh, uh, queer baited with Josh Gad in a Disney yeah. movie um, so first time in five years even <laughs> yeah. so there's money to be made uh, I would I, I would hope it's a girl just so that we can see Olaf's exact design but with like a snow a bow in her hair made of snow a bow snow. and like that's a snow bow and that's the only difference yeah. um especially because they already have elsa who they can queer bait and then never actually like fully never commit to making her to gay. deliver they're like we still they never have to deliver by like, i don't know maybe she's gay it's up to you she likes to read um, and she's an introvert maybe or not this is our most tangential episode of adaptation <laughs> game yet you know you get us talking about disney we're not we're not going to be able to not go off There's on these tangents i I applaud myself for the amount of self-restraint I showed in the Star Wars section because yeah. that could have been the whole episode. They very well could have. Uh, and and it will be probably several episodes in the future. Eventually. So, uh, well, great. I think, I think we've really created something beautiful with that. I can't wait to lift my feet up so that I don't accidentally get tickled <laughs> by the gremlins. And uh, with that <laughs> – with that, uh, if you if if it's all right with you, Chris, I will take the floor take it away, with Daddy. Uh, my pitch. So, in crafting my pitch, now you're gonna notice uh, pretty instantaneously that there's a stark tonal difference between Chris's pitch and my pitch. Uh, my pitch is significantly less reverent, uh, but it's also uh, not really about. Disney, it's sort of taking a uh, uh, the loose ideas of a ride and turning that into a almost entirely unrelated film. Wow. So uh, in, in, in coming up with this idea, I was thinking about what ride I wanted to do. And uh, I decided ultimately to adapt uh, what was my favorite ride as a child going to Disney World. Probably the first like coaster that I ever enjoyed 
which is uh, Big Thunder Mountain oh, nice. in Frontierland. So this is my Big Thunder Mountain movie, which I decided, I don't know why this happened, but it struck me like a bolt of lightning that I wanted to take to make my Big Thunder Mountain movie. I wanted my two big sources of inspiration to be Citizen Kane and uh, Anton Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard, wow. sort of combining those stories together into uh, into what will be my uh, my Big Thunder Mountain. So this could either be a movie, or I honestly think this could probably work on stage as well. I think this could be a good <laughs> a, play. a good like Ch- a Chekhovian drama, um, a, a starkly serious play. Uh, so the story follows our protagonist, Raul Jimenez, Hmm. who is uh, the son of a Cuban immigrant and a Russian immigrant who uh, fall in love and uh, move to the American Southwest with their newly born son in search of opportunity. And they end up in a small town in Arizona. Oh, this is like the late 1800s, by the way. Uh, So this is the late 1800s, and they end up in uh, the small town of Rainbow Ridge, which is a prosperous mining town where Raul's father, Javier, Mm -hmm. takes a job as a miner and Raul's mother, Zelenin, she begins working as a housekeeper for the wealthiest family in town, the Gore family, who owns the the gold mine in town and they basically own the entire town because of that. So through his mother's work, Raul, as a young boy, spends all of his time at this like rich family estate. Um, and he ends up befriending uh, Richard Gore, who is the patriarch of the Gore family. He befriends their daughter, Marcia, and is often found playing around there. However, tragedy hits the Jimenez family, family when Javier is killed in a cave-in and uh, Richard Gore takes pity on the on on young Raul and his mother, and decides to take them in and let them live in the sort of like servants' quarters uh, off the main house. So Raul basically becomes adopted by the Gore family and and grows up with them. But as time passes, uh, Raul he begins it becomes more and more clear to him that even though he's kind of been brought into this family he will never truly be one of them mm. uh partially because of his cuban heritage and the fact that he is like uh you know he has some like latin genes and also just because of like where his family comes from because his family is poor and they're rich and it's just two different worlds so uh, he, even though he was so close to Marcia as a child, as they get older, Marcia starts to keep him more and more at arm's length, despite uh, at some point, I think Raul develops feelings for her, but she very much uh, pushes him further and further away. And um, Richard, the father, gets colder and more distant towards Raul the older he gets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's very much an outcast in his own home life. Mm. And then tragedy strikes yet again, again. when as a, te- as a teenager, Raul finds his mother dead of what is declared a brain aneurysm. Oh. So with his mother now gone, Richard heartlessly kicks Raul out of the house. He's like, you know what? Your mom's gone. 
you have no reason to be here anymore now that your mom's not working for me. Like, I want you gone. So newly embittered, Raul seeks to prove himself worthy of their love and acceptance. He vows himself that he's going to accumulate as much wealth as possible so that he will earn his way into the upper echelons of society. So he strikes out for a nearby ghost town, uh, the town of Thumbleweed, of Tumbleweed, rather, of Tumbleweed, Arizona. You know what? Just for that, we're going to call it Thumbleweed. Thumbleweed is dope. I've been to Tumbleweed. It sucks. Thumbleweed, Arizona, uh, said, which is said to be a cursed land. Uh, he ignores all warnings and begins to turn the town around by setting up several casinos and brothels using a legal loophole uh, because the land technically stands on Native American land. Uh, so he's able to set up all that stuff. So uh, eventually the town becomes basically a minor success due to the, the gambling community that, that takes up there. So with his newfound wealth, he ends up building himself a mansion on the outskirts of town and invites the Gore family and other wealthy elite families in the, in the Arizona area to a large housewarming party where he desperately tries to fit in by showing off his wealth and bragging of his newfound success in a supposedly cursed land but is he is only met with condescension and patronizing by all of his wealthy guests who even though he is earning his spot amongst them they still see him as an outsider Mm. they still see him as this this immigrant boy who has no place in their sort of like elite they're not like outwardly hostile to him they just like don't take him seriously you know no matter what he does so He's been spurned once again, and he decides that the problem is, is that he's not yet rich enough. He needs to get even richer if he's going to earn their respect. So he redoubles his efforts in town, and he creates more gambling opportunities in his casinos with shadier and shadier games, and goes to greater and greater lengths to make sure his brothels are the filthiest in the world. Oh my god, what does that mean, Matthew? It means that these are brothels where anything goes. Where these are these are expert women who will do anything. Expert men and women wow. who will do anything. Oh my god! And you know he's sort of like creating this iron grip on this town. He's turning <laughs> it from what started as like you know Branson, Missouri, and then became like Las Vegas, and now is just becoming like you know just an, an even more sort of like sinful New sinful Orleans. town. Yeah, it's just getting like dingier and seedier, but it's making more and more money. You know, crime is going up, but like his for his personal fortune is growing, and that's all that he cares about. His fortune grows at the cost of his sanity and his humanity as he becomes more and more isolated, pushing away all of the people who helped him get where he is. Yes. And even even though he is now more wealth he's about as wealthy as the gore family was when he grew up if not more so he's still like no it's not enough i've got to tell these gals to do even more than anything that people ask them to do 
He's got it. He's always upping the stakes. He's always making it crazier. And in his, so he ends up shutting himself up inside his mansion as he tries to come up with ways to make more and more money. And he becomes obsessed with a red rock formation on the outside of town that cuts off Thumbleweed from the closest railway, uh, a, a red rock formation that the locals call Big Thunder Mountain. Mm-hmm. This becomes his white whale. Yeah, it does. He becomes obsessed with whale. this mountain because he comes to the conclusion that if he can create his own private railway leading over Big Thunder Mountain, then he can make the town more accessible to tourists and triple his profits. Yeah. So he starts construction on the Big Thunder Mountain Railway, which is what he decides to call it. But it's immediately met with tragedy as fatal accidents begin to happen frequently where people are like, I I think the mountain is cursed. I think we should stop production. And he's like, no, I don't give a shit. We keep building. I don't care how many people we lose. So undeterred, Raul insists that the work continue. And eventually the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad is complete at the cost of countless human lives. The mountain itself is stained with their blood. And Raul throws this he throws a grand opening party for his new railway where he invites the gores who all arrive, but they are now penniless and destitute because the gold mine ran dry yeah, and and his town of Thumbleweed ended up absolving, uh, absorbing all the workers and all of the possible economic growth that their mm-hmm. town could have. Mm-hmm. However – Despite their reversed economic status, the Gores are just as condescending and just as patronizing as they always were, and they still refuse to take him seriously. You know, they're very much like, hey, good job. You did it. You should be proud of what you did. And that that just causes him, you know, that just totally pushes him over the edge. And, you know, he has like a confrontation with Marsha where he's like, I'm the richest man in the United States now. Like you, you, you can marry me now. Like we can be together. And she's just like, Hey, you did a great job and you should be proud of what you did, you know, but, but we're just, we're from different worlds. And like one day, you know, we'll, we'll meet somewhere, but it's just never going to happen. I need to be with somebody that my father will approve of. And, and, and he just snaps and he strangles her to death. To death. Yes. Good. He strangles That's her to good death. Turn. Yes. He strangles her to death. And, and, and with that, he has officially completely crossed over into just like a being of pure instinct and yeah. madness. And, he goes and he uh, confronts uh, Richard, the patriarch, yeah. who uh, Richard reveals to him that the only reason he brought them into the house in the first place was because he was having an affair with uh, with his mother, no, with the housekeeper. Richard, oh, my God. And that she got pregnant. Oh. And so he staged her death and made it look like it was just an unfortunate illness. Oh, my God. And so uh, – now knowing this, Raul decides to to continue his revenge. Oh yeah! By 
he sabotages the railway and then boards the train with an unknowing Richard. And while the train is kind of going up the mountain, he tells him, he's like, hey, so I know you killed my mom and I want you to know that I killed your daughter and I'm about to kill us both because this train is going to go off the rails. And and with that, the train, you know, everything comes crumbling down. The train uh, goes off the rails. It careens off. Everyone on board is killed. The entire track is destroyed as like Raul is just like cackling as he's like falling to his death with Richard. But what ends up happening is that everyone on board is killed except Raul who awakes. He awakens in the rubble surrounded by a mountain of corpses and twisted metal. And he climbs to the top of this mountain and climbs up to the top of big thunder mountain where he looks on as he sees an earthquake swallow his entire town of Thumbleweed hole, his new Gomorrah, this this yeah. den of sin and debauchery is swallowed whole by the earth as he just cackles from the mountain maniacally as as thunder clouds roll in overhead and that is our final image sort of Raul covered in blood uh, standing atop oh, a mountain yeah. of literal literal corpses and metal and he's just cackling as oh, as no. everything is a blood diamond absorbed. moment basically uh so that is my that is my big thunder mountain movie you know uh hey this is uh jimbo from the uh, the uh, standards and practices now matthew we know you bring stuff in here and you want to upset us and you want to say things you want us to be like i'm very conflicted but you get a green light and young man i think you tripped into some gold just like a young raul here I think you wanted to go too far. I think you wanted to shock us. And you did shock us. You shocked us right into being very happy. Because this is exactly the tone of like, it's the There Will Be Blood meets the Lone Ranger, but better. It's a wonderful picture you pitched us. There's a little bit of Parasite in there as well, yes. I think. I, yes. try, I tried to work some of that the into. The classist piece. And, you know, There Will Be Blood even has that at their uh, the milk dinner or whatever. Uh, fabulous, fabulous journey you took us on just then. Thumbleweed, what a what, what a brilliant riff on that town. Uh, I think I'm going to throw it over to Danny from Callbacks. He's waving his hand wildly at the end of the table. Hey, uh, this is Danny from Callbacks uh, and uh, Easter Eggs. There's just two opportunities I'd like to pitch you. I'd like to roll down your alley if you like. Take them or leave them. You know, I just want our clients to be happy. The first one is uh, a goat with dynamite in his mouth. Are we open to having a goat with dynamite in his mouth at any point in this story? He doesn't I have think, to blow anything up. He just has to have it in his mouth. Disney's asking me. They're, they're, they're ringing out my phone to blow my phone. If we could have that in a brothel montage, we could have like a scene yes. where like a goat and like yes. a bunch of dynamite exactly. is being brought into a room. And this is in step and it's like, with... Uh, we don't know what's going on with that, but... It's in, you know, yeah, whatever, it's in step with the works. Tortuga series. It does sequence from Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, like there's they've no legs to stand on if they're unhappy with the brothel being used as an easter egg second one uh this could be dramatic this could be humorous maybe someone happens upon the wreckage maybe it's an old miner 49er sort of type character 
And he just mutters to himself as he looks out through his dried lips into the camera and says, <laughs> I already know what you're going to say. I know this what you're going to say. This is the wildest ride in the wilderness. Is that something See, you're I interested in having in your picture? I think that's that's got to be the tagline. You know, that's got to be oh, this sort of tagline the on the poster, poster. And it's this man, this a very the- handsome <laughs> man, standing amidst the r- twisted metal and rubble. And he looks out sexually at the camera, Pirates of the Caribbean style. And then the tagline of the poster is the wildest ride in the wilderness. Uh, you know, I think we can have like in the top in the top corner of the poster, we have the sort of image of of Raul with like both hands up, like silhouetted on the mountain and like tattered clothes from the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and maybe like a single like bolt of lightning going across. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so people see that and they're like, what the fuck happens in this movie? Like, this has got to be intense. Yeah. Uh, and and while I'm speaking to the gentleman from the Easter egg department, I yeah. think it's important to point out uh, just as a sort of uh uh, appendices. I think a lot of my pitches need to be read like how, uh, you know how you have to read Ulysses with like a separate book that just explains all like the references and the, yeah, the yeah. outdated or things that you're not getting. No fear Shakespeare in my case. I've never picked up the Ulysses <laughs> myself. Yeah, so it's basically that kind of situation. So let me just uh, clarify that. Um, so uh, the the character is named Raoul after uh, uh, may he rest in peace, deceased actor Raoul Julia, oh. who was uh, famously in a production of The Cherry Orchard, which I understand to be like just like one of the best productions of that show. Um, and uh, he plays the character in the Cherry Orchard, whose name escapes me. But uh, he's the character who is sort of in that same position of trying to ingratiate himself into the wealthy family, but they will never accept him, mm, mm. Uh, even though he is like he ends up being the wealthy one and they end up being destitute. He's still like always sort of rebuffed. Uh, and that that's sort of the, the core idea I wanted to bring into this, whereas uh, almost all of the other characters are named after characters from the uh, incredibly obscure uh, Nintendo DS RPG uh, Shin Megami Tensei Strange Journey. Uh, so for the for well, the one person listening to this who heard the name Jimenez and then heard Zelenin, uh, they were like, hey, wait a minute. And, and then they know, heard Gore. And, and being from Easter Eggs, I can appreciate a meta theatrical Easter egg within our own program, the Adaptation Game, in that you have done a, a, a Shimigami Tensei uh, uh, alluded uh, a, a pitch in the past back during the Fire Festival episode, if I'm correct. Yeah, well, it's it is something that I it comes up almost in, always in my life. Uh, I, I'm a mega ten head. Uh, I'm willing to uh, own up to that, and it's going to make its way into a lot of my pitches because it's a wonderful series, yeah. wonderfully blasphemous, just like myself. And, uh, um, I, I, if I might uh, drop in here, I'm Peter from uh, from marketing. Uh, just one last piece. I think Easter eggs covered most of our questions. I'm going through my list. There's one last thing. Um, we're looking at an alternate. So maybe uh, while this ride in the wilderness is our teaser poster that has no other information beyond Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and our in our our, our uh, unofficial image of of the young Raul amidst the wreckage with the lightning. Um, uh, with the official poster, would you be open to the tagline "Keep your uh, arms and legs within the cart at all times"? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it should be altered slightly just to make more sense. Uh, maybe something like keep your arms and legs inside capitalism at all times. That, you know, that, uh, some, something like that's that. That's of interest um, to us as well. As long as there's arms and legs inside <laughs> at all times, regardless of the vehicle or engine, we're very happy with that. But otherwise, it's a big old green light from all departments. 
Well, thank you. You know, I strove to write a story that was very uh, anti-capitalist. I think very much in the style of, of, I think, Parasite has brought so much of that into our collective unconscious right now. This idea of like, you know, these class stories kind of whittling away at the at, at capitalism's uh, foundations in our lives and showing the darker side of it, you know, and also an opportunity to show the darker side of kind of the immigrant experience yeah. and the experience of, of never being accepted by the sort of of like upper class, like white elites who even when, you know, roles are reversed, they still see themselves as, as, as superior. And this, and, oh, sorry. I, I don't want to interrupt. Well, and they get what's coming to them. Well, and this, yeah. This is Brandon from, uh, this is Brandon from polit- political leanings. Um, so <laughs> in the political leanings department, uh, we find ourselves at the time of this recording just a week after a very close election where actually the Cuban male population are a big Trump power block. Uh, so mm. uh, the idea, of, and and it has been written about recently about this desire to fit in with an Anglican populace of just flipping over to a, uh, George Lopez also talks about this, uh, where uh, a Cuban immigrant uh, population historically uh, flips over to a conservative white sort of agenda politically and and uh, culturally very quickly. So I think that that's a very poetic, accidental sort of uh, element of this narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that that's that's in there very much intentionally. Um, I think that there's there's a lot of opportunity to examine all of this stuff, you know. And I think that that's why, uh, partially why I think a lot of this would work on stage. Uh, obviously, it's a less sort of cinematic, you know, duh, uh, by definition. Um, uh, medium, I think that it's still like the kind of show that would really work. You know, I think that that moment where Raul really snaps and and strangles Marsha, I think that could be like really shocking to a live audience, you know, just like, <gasps> you know, mm-hmm. like really just like seeing that that play out. And then, you know, having, having a similar moment shortly thereafter where um, Raul gets on the train with uh, with Richard and sits down next to him and like reveals to him like, hey, I know, and we're both about to die. Sweeney Todd like moment there for sure. This is yeah. Uh, lastly, this is Karen from casting. Do you have any uh, stars in mind for this one? Because I know who would be great for the girl. Oh, I would. Oh shit! <laughs> I think you know who it is too. Of, I think I have a couple of guesses. I think you have one guess that you need to guess, but Katie Mara would I, be a real dreamboat okay, in is. this picture there it is. in this. <laughs> as an ill-fated uh fallen from grace socialite you know i think I, that's possible uh i think i think for the male lead uh i want to dip into like the theater world and i want to find like an unknown mm. give somebody their like film debut nice. find like a young cuban actor uh you know or or whatever who can like really like make his somebody with like a real strong theater background mm. you know because i think that's the that's the energy i want to bring into this love that you know is is that very chekhovian drama feeling so i want like a lot of the actors to have like a strong theater background you know maybe the 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 patriarch the richard the dad he is uh you know somebody like um i don't know like a william hurt or something nice um, Maybe not William Hurt. He's 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 a little uh, bland in the wrong role. But you know somebody somebody who can who can really convey that kind of gravitas. Wait, who does this? Is one second here. Let me get the actor. It's this is Spinal Tap. Michael McKean. Michael McKean is a huge theater guy, but also wonderful. Ooh, on, I'm on interested. Screen. 
Yeah, Better Call Saul. I think that the the energy he has on Better Call Saul when he's sort of like condescending to Jimmy, yeah. I think is very much the he same kind of that, that I'm too. that I'm talking about. So that so I'm interested in that. I think there's there there might be something there. Uh, so that's so that's my big Thunder Mountain. Um, I think I think I was expecting more outrage from the Disney heads uh, at my just pure because this would be a hard R. Obviously, it's a, it's a know, hard R, but a I think. I mean, for a ride, speaking of heads, it's a ride that's beheaded many people. Um, that's cut off yes. many heads. So I think that Disney <laughs> has few legs to stand on, for lack of a better term. And I think it's important to note, uh, I, in my research for this episode, I did learn that Big Thunder Mountain um, inexplicably uh, has caused many people to pass kidney stones over the course of the ride. Really? And this is something that they did tests on and hasn't been replicated on other rides. There is something specifically about Big Thunder Mountain <laughs> that causes test, people huh? to pass kidney stones. We have three people that are about to pass kidney stones and here's Dumbo. <laughs> well, they basically ran. <laughs> I'm in excruciating pain, sir. Please unbuckle me. Uh, I don't really know how that works. I think that's something I'd like to spend some more time looking into. <laughs> but uh, I'm happy to hear I got the green light. I feel like my, my uh, honestly, and I don't know if I would say this for necessarily every pitch I've put forward on this show. This is something I would very much like to see. You know, oh, yeah. I, would, I would very much like to... I would like to uh, maybe maybe one day I'll just sit down and, and churn this sucker out and we'll see it live on stage with Chris Okawa um, in, in the lead role as as Richard. As maybe as a, maybe a Richard dies. or I wouldn't mind just the one line at the end, the wildest ride in the wilderness yeah. guy. I love a bit part. Right. As 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 uh, uh, oh, Chris Okawa coming in. This as, is the uh, wildest the, ride uh, in the wilderness. <laughs> Perhaps undercutting the drama somewhat, but uh, a necessary levity. Um, so I think our two pitches here are pretty starkly different, but is there any similarities here between these two? I think that we both honored to some degree the heritage of these different rides. We didn't try and like blast it. We didn't try to do like, a, this is the future version of, of, uh, Thunder Mountain, and we also didn't do the future. Like, I honored the origins of the omnibus and the the park as a whole. So I think that we both really, as irreverent as we can be, we do have a respect for what Disneyland has achieved and where it lives in the zeitgeist. And I think that's reflected by the heritage that we set our uh, our pieces in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, they both incorporate the ride that they're supposed to. So, I mean, there's, there's that. Very um, yeah. But uh, for the most part, I think we took this concept in extremely different directions. Um, I your while yours was very reverent of Disney, I wouldn't say that mine was not reverent. No. It just it was it just didn't really have anything to do with Disney. Well, it was purely based on the ride in a vacuum. Well, I uh, I had uh, I well, fun fact is that Kierna and I got married uh, in the same town, maybe fifteen minutes from the real. Big Thunder Mountain Railroad or Big Thunder Mountain oh. in, uh, in Sedona. Well, Disney had a home there and he, he was, it was uh, within view of his home and he was writing and he was like, oh my gosh, this is brilliant. Um, so that's a fun fact. But uh, uh, also I have a question for you. Would you say were there, Please. for me, there's a little bit of a small graveyard of pitches that were not uh, in preparation for this episode. Do you have any pitches you threw away or did you find uh, Thunder Mountain Railroad as, as your first stop? You know, I think that 
I don't know what it was. I think I think something about that like there will be blood kind of vibe uh immediately struck me. Um and and I just dove right in there. You know, I, I even before I really settled on Big Thunder Mountain, there was something about this like class struggle and this sort of citizen Kane tale of somebody becoming rich and and um you know, disconnected from their own humanity. That all started to grab me before I even settled on a ride. So I was immediately pushed in that direction. As you can probably tell from uh, uh, listening to previous episodes, but I don't often throw away ideas when I'm writing for this show. <laughs> everything everything makes it in, no matter how insane. <laughs> the cutting room floor, who's that? Oh yeah, I was cutting, just the curious. cutting room floor is bare. <laughs> it's barren. It's clean as a whistle down there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, <laughs> I love that. I love that. My my cutting room floor for this was. I thought I was gonna be really cheeky, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna take a ride that is already based on a movie and make that ride into another movie. Um, and one that came to mind was either Mr. Toad's ride where you go to hell at the end in big time Mm. or, um, the, or the Alice in Wonderland ride where you were, it was sort of like a crash team racing, like a picture that ended up, did, did not make it to, uh, development kind of like a David Fincher picture. Well, I will say when you first pitched this idea, my initial instinct was that I should do the people mover in yes, uh, uh, Tomorrowland. People mover, I love it. I I thought I that made one a too. mental note. <laughs> I made a mental note that I was like, oh, I should do the people mover because that would be a fun one to adapt. But honestly, I completely forgot that I even said that to myself <laughs> until just now. It's just so, so hard. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sure I could have worked something out of that. I, I, you know what? I think this is. Let's go ahead and slap a volume one on this because I, like I think this is. I think we can revisit this. There's a lot of rides and there's a lot of opportunities, and the People Mover will have its day in the sun if I have anything to say about it. So with that, I think it's time that we bring this adaptation game to a close. I think we've covered some some very broad topics and we've gone <laughs> off in a lot of fun directions. I think someone um, can get a degree after listening to this, like an online degree, like a Phoenix Phoenix College degree. Absolutely. This this counts as Disneyana uh, 101. So uh, thank, you, thank you for listening. And uh, as a final moment, I will uh, – I think it's my turn to add yeah. an item to the Adaptation Lounge. And so I'm going to go ahead and give us a pin trader's booth, mm. uh, you know, w- w- with, with, an, with employee, an employee, with an attendant Good. there. Yeah, with somebody there to, <laughs> to – to trade pins with us and and the on, unfortunately the only pins available are like none of the ones we're looking for. No. Um they have like 14 figment pins but we And a we lot don't, of we, Sleeping you know, Beauty under 5 characters. Like there's a lot yeah. of the owl <laughs> and the clothing in there and I'm like why do you make this? <laughs> Yeah, likes that? And, and and I would say about half of it is John Carter of Mars. Oh, yeah. Uh, pins. Or the Power Ranger ones. Have you seen those? That's it. You're like, that's a license. Do they have Power Ranger pins? Yeah, it's like, oh, I would love like, to have Power Ranger buy pins. This? Yeah, no, they Disney's been in control of Power, or at least, I mean, because I know they air Power Rangers. So um, I feel like they must have yeah, control of that it, branch. Sure. Um, all right. Well, thank you uh, once again for listening, folks. I hope you learned something about uh, capitalism and about Disney and about anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so signing off, this is Matthew Schott, your intrepid host. And of course, as always, Chris Okawa, the intrepid co-host. Here I am. And here I will be. There he is. <laughs> and here we'll stay. In the adaptation with our one lounge. share. Until. In the adaptation lounge. Calls. 
we will we're gonna continue just hanging out here until we are once again needed by the world so thank you for listening and we will see you next time